0: Welcome along to another coronavirus update podcast. I'm Marcus Stead and I'm joined as usual by veteran campaigner and blogger Greg Lance Watkins. It's clear we're now moving into another phase of the coronavirus pandemic and the UK government slogan, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives, has been replaced by the altogether more woolly, stay alert, control the virus, save lives. Greg and I discuss this. We also look into the problems devolution is causing in preventing a UK-wide coordinated response to the crisis. Do stay with us. Greg, I want to start by saying that I think from the UK government's perspective, some quite serious mistakes were made around about this time last week. Because to, to, to cast our minds back, we knew the bank holiday weekend was coming, the VE Day celebrations, what were due to be the VE Day celebrations were coming. I think Boris Johnson should have addressed the nation, not on Sunday, but on Thursday of last week. Because Thursday evening, the bank holiday weekend was still ahead of us. Gut instinct, nice weather is to go out and celebrate. Okay, we had to curtail our V-Day celebrations, but he should have said, you know, don't let your guard down. He didn't do that. He addressed the nation on Sunday evening. And by the way, we now know for sure that through much of Saturday into the early part of Sunday there were furious emails sent between government ministers and civil servants over the mixed messaging but we also know by the way that uh, at hospital A&E departments on Friday night into Saturday in particular they were overwhelmed with people uh, who got injuries through drunken, disorderly behaviour, head injuries, fights, you name it, it happened. I think a mistake was made. Boris Johnson should have addressed the nation on Thursday evening of last week before the bank holiday.
1: I can understand your your thoughts on that. However, had he not been endlessly pestered with incredibly amateur uh, media reporting that was inventing what he was going to say in advance of it, and the vituperative comments of uh, the opposition and uh, the regional governments of wales and scotland we wouldn't have had a fraction of the amount of problem that we had he went on record because he he had to tell parliament first in detail he went on record saying that he would be giving an outline of the way ahead on sunday he gave an outline then on monday he spoke in a more responsible manner in detail giving the details to parliament which principle and normal practice behoves him to do so i don't i'm not quite as critical as you on that issue i think he did the right thing he was terribly let down by misunderstanding the utterly amateur nature of the media at the moment and the pernicious uh, politicking over this great issue, which is killing many people in this country, yet it seems to be being used for personal political gain by a few scoundrels.
0: Going back to where we were in terms of the devolved institutions, and we'll explore this in more depth in a few moments, but on Thursday, and I think it may have been Wednesday in this case of Scotland, Nicholas Sturgeon in Scotland, Mark Drakeford in Wales, uh, Arlene Foster in Northern Ireland issued their advice and the tone of their advice was very much stay at home. And whilst I am not a supporter of Mark Drakeford and I have attacked him many times, both in this podcast and elsewhere, my articles for Spiked have often been critical of Mark Drakeford. At least his advice was clear. We are going to have three more weeks of this. He said so on Thursday. The advice is still very much stay at home. We'll come on in a minute, and I don't want you to address this now because we're going to discuss this in more depth in a minute how Mark Drake, has let himself down by not following his own advice, not understanding his own advice. That at least Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland had got things in place before the bank holiday weekend, before people acted and behaved over the course of the bank holiday. And we know. What I fear, Greg, and and you can address this point, please, is that the way a substantial minority of people behave over the bank holiday, and it is a minority, and I'm grateful to the majority of the population for following the rules. As I say, A&E departments were overwhelmed, and they were with with the usual Friday night things one would expect to see, I now fear as a result of that, we are going to see a spike in COVID-19 cases in two to three weeks' time.
1: Oh, I don't think there's any doubt we will see a spike because people are acting irresponsibly. Now, as um, many of our listeners know, I live on the main A48 Road, just outside Cheps. And we've been doing quite a lot of work on our garden alongside the main road, actually outside of our own property on the Verge area. Over the last week or so, and it has been very, very noticeable in traffic.
0: And your point being then that people are becoming lax, is that what you're getting at?
1: Um, I'm not sure lax is the right word. Utterly irresponsible might be a better way of putting it.
0: Well, okay. With that in mind, then, Boris Johnson addressed the nation on Sunday evening, and I knew throughout the day on Sunday that there was chaos going on with the emails and the rows that were going on at various levels of UK government. But we've gone from, what was the original slogan now? Um, protect the NHS, save lives, um, stay. Stay, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. That is, and it was on a a yellow background, black black writing on a yellow background with um, a red parameter. Um, That then changed to stay alert, control the virus, save lives with a green parameter. Now, I don't think the UK government should have changed from stay home, protect the NHS, save lives because that is a very clear thing. It's been drummed. I, I just had a momentary lapse a minute ago, but it's something that has been drummed into people's heads by ministers at the 5 p.m. daily briefings, in ad breaks on television, day after day after day for weeks. This new one, well, the first thing is you've worked in advertising in the past, and so have I, albeit a long time ago in your case, but even so, the principle is the same. Psychologically, red means danger. Red means be on guard. Red means be alert. And when you saw stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives, with the red background, that is a psychological message. That was changed to green with this new one, stay alert, control the virus, save lives. That in itself, green means safe, go ahead, proceed. In this case, green psychologically means let your guard down. I think that is dangerous. The second point I would make is that this term, stay alert, control the virus, forget save lives, that bit hasn't changed, but stay alert, control the virus. When you say alert, what what does that mean? Stay alert of what with who? Control the Uh, virus. Well, can the virus actually be controlled in that sense? I think dropping that key message, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives, I think dropping that from Sunday onwards was a mistake.
1: I think that there is no choice but to drop it from Sunday onwards because more and more people are being forced back to work because of a couple of things. One, we cannot afford to have everybody staying out of work. There are many areas where it is safe with intelligence if people stay alert for them to go back to work. People who can't work from home and stay alert means alert to the dangers the dangers are keep social distancing and when it comes to getting an understanding of what is best and most important in social distancing i would advocate that you socially distance from laura koonsberg emily maitlis (laughs) Um, And various others who are putting out the most appallingly irresponsible, amateur, and crass attempts of pretending to be journalists, whilst posturing to look as if they know what they're talking about, when most of them are talking unmitigated garbage.
0: I'm glad you said that because um, this morning on Talk Radio uh, with, on the Mike Graham show, they have the, the webcam on in the studio and they put it up on YouTube. He tore up a copy of The Guardian. Um, it, 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 there was a leader column in The Guardian and, and Mike tore up his copy and threw it across the room. Uh, not for the first time he's done that either, by the way. And he said, this is complete and utter garbage because it was um, an opinion piece praising Sir Keir Starmer um, and claiming that Boris Johnson hasn't done enough to outline where we are going. Well, the reality is that Boris Johnson did a number of things. Sunday evening, he addressed
1: the nation. Um, And then the BBC gave Keir Starmer a party political broadcast.
0: Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. We'll come come on to Starmer in a moment. But you look at what Boris Johnson did. He addressed the nation at seven o'clock on Sunday evening. By Monday morning, there was a 50-page documentation issued, giving details about where we are, where we're heading and where we hope to proceed. Monday afternoon, he addressed the House of Commons in some detail, in some depth. Monday tea time, he gave a full press conference. So to say that Boris Johnson hasn't done anything, yes, I think he had a wobble from the end of last week until Sunday evening, but I think he's got things well and truly back on track to where we, where we are now. Um, so, so for the you know the, the nitpicky, and as Mike Graham rightly said on talk radio this morning, for the Guardian to nitpick like that and say that he didn't have a plan, what more do you want? There is a fifty-page plan. Now, what I would say is you couldn't possibly articulate all the things that are going on uh, in that fifty-page plan in a ten-minute address to the nation, or even speaking to the House of Commons for any length of time, or in a press conference. I think that the various aspects of this, when it is appropriate to have public information films in, in ad breaks on television programs and indeed on YouTube, because an increasing number of people are consuming their entertainment that way, informing the public of exactly where we're heading in more specifics than we're getting at the moment. But I do agree with you about the nitpicky nature of it. Now, contrast that to Wales. And I said we'd come back to Drakeford, and now we well, will. May
1: I, may I first of all remind you that right at the outset of the lockdown, when there was an absolute panic buying of toilet paper, I very loudly proclaimed on the internet that everyone was being very foolish because Newport toilet paper was being produced every day by The Guardian.
0: <laughs> very true. And there are other papers are available that were almost as bad in my view with some of the headlines we saw towards the end of last week. And Mirror, I know- The
1: Observer, The Sun, Shall we go on?
0: Yeah, it's irresponsible garbage. Now, for example, there were, people were messaging me last week on WhatsApp and on Twitter saying, hey, the beer gardens are going to be open. The pubs that, allow, that have room for beer gardens, they're going to be open. And I very calmly said, one, I, I hope not. And two, that's almost certainly not true. Now, I've been in journalism long enough to know how these sort of things work. And what has happened is, particularly lobby reporters in Westminster, Have had conversations with either backbench MPs, junior ministers, or even civil servants who have said something along the lines of at some point when we do start to reopen um, pubs and restaurants, pubs with beer gardens may well be the first to open because it's possible to social distance more. They have turned that into Prime Minister to announce beer gardens are to open from next week. And I knew that was absolute garbage and there was no chance whatsoever of that happening. Now, to go where I want to go with this, I said that uh, I talked just a bit in in a little bit of depth about um, Boris Johnson's uh, 50-page plan and how he's made a good start in that respect. Mark Drakeford in Wales does not have a 50-page plan and the leader of the Welsh Conservatives Paul Davis has said can you publish your plan if indeed you've got one at all and the evidence seems to suggest he hasn't got one but what we are seeing and For those of you who don't relate to Wales and aren't from Wales, please forgive me. This is relevant to you, and I'm about to explain why. You, Greg, as you've already said in this podcast, you've said numerous times before, you live just over the border on the English side. We now have a ludicrous situation with the new guidelines issued by the UK government where you can perfectly legally drive three or four hours to a beach in East Anglia, but you cannot drive 10 minutes to a beach in South Wales under these new regulations. And this is a typical example, and one of the worst examples I've seen yet, of how devolution is creating flaws in this process. And furthermore, Owen Money on BBC Radio Wales uh, yesterday said that he gave an example of a golf course on the Herefordshire border, where 15 holes are in England, three are in Wales. Now, the Welsh Government has clarified golf courses are now allowed to open. But it has to be said, this is now creating devolution, is creating not only uncertainties and confusion, but also complete absurdities.
1: Well, um, when it comes to golf courses, there's no problem at all, because if I was playing golf, I'd be at least two meters away from everybody, probably 200 meters away, because I'd have hit the ball in the wrong damn direction. I'm useless (laughs) at it. Um, However, amusingly, um, where I live, there is a beach at, would you believe, Beachley, um, which is on the English side, but the next nearest beach, I have to travel um, a mile and three quarters through Wales to get onto the Severn Bridge to go to Ost, which is back into England again. It is a farce having this devolution concept. Because at the end of the day, if Mickey Mouse regions of Britain decide to devolve and go as far as independence, the farcical concept that is when it comes to either Scotland or Wales, there would have to be a hard border. That would make a game of golf on the course that you just defined as rather difficult because when you get to the last three holes, um, you'd have to go through border control.
0: Yeah, it's,
1: yeah.
0: I I've written about this in some depth on um, the, the spiked website where um where again, it's an article that was published towards the end of last year where I mentioned that you think the problems we're having over the Northern Ireland border in relation to Brexit are bad. You just wait and see how things are with this. But uh, you're not much of a golfer. I'm not much of a golfer, though. I uh, I did hit two good balls the other day. You know, I whacked myself with a rake. Boom, boom. <laughs> hmm. Not bad. Not bad. Um, but go, going back, but going back Could to be more, a
1: terminal game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Going back to uh, more serious matters and back to Mark Drakeford. He gave a press conference um on on Tuesday where he actually when did he give the press conference? Was it Tuesday or Monday originally? Well, where
1: this he, is his notorious allotment.
0: Yeah, this is what I'm gonna talk about. Now he said, in fact, it was Monday. He said the rules in Wales are that two people can meet provided they observe social distancing. He went on to say it has been the case throughout coronavirus in Wales. That if you as an individual are out taking exercise, you can, at a social distance, have contact with one other person. We have always said that two people are able to interact in that way. And if you did as I did, go on my bicycle to my allotment through one of the major fields in Cardiff, then you see people doing that all the time. Now, he said that on Monday. By Tuesday afternoon, one of his senior civil servants had to hastily correct it when he was asked about it. In a press conference and the senior civil servant said overarching advice in Wales is to stay at home and that members of the public have to have a reasonable excuse to go out of their homes as long as the lockdown is in force and he went on to clarify that those reasons those reasonable excuses are to take exercise, to go to work if they can't work from home, shopping for necessities, to go out for a medical need to go out to provide care or help to a vulnerable person. But they did add that pre-arranging to meet friends and family, even one at a time, is not a reasonable excuse. And anyone following Mark Drakeford's wrong advice could potentially have found themselves being fined. The Welsh Government itself has now confirmed that the rules mean that members of different households are not allowed to meet in parks so mark drakeford the first minister of wales did not understand his own advice point 1 point 2 what on earth was he doing going to his allotment anyway
1: oh essential service going to his allotment no that's a hobby hmm.
0: yeah And this is this is our leader in Wales. This is the man in charge of it. This is the cream of the crop. This is the best man for the job. Is it?
1: This is last of summer wine, isn't it? (laughs) He'd be better on the cast of that than he has ever been as a politician. Yeah. Which he has been an unmitigated disaster. Let me ask you you
0: something. Can I ask you something in relation to that? Mark Drakeford made this mistake, well, mistake, error, foolishness, whatever, call it what you will, by bicycling to his allotment and with not remotely understanding his own advice. Tell me now, if Boris Johnson had made an identical gaffe, would the media be giving him a much, much harder time? I think they would, undoubtedly. They'd be calling for his resignation. Exactly, exactly. But in Wales, with the exception of David Morris Jones and Phil Parry, I don't see anyone attacking Drakeford for his there actions is a of reason recent
1: days. Yeah. There is a very strong reason for that, uh, in my opinion. Of all of the people in politics, they all realise that Mark Drakeford is. The best man for the job of running that idiotic assembly.
0: Parliaments, if you don't mind. It's a parliament as of last week Um, called the Welsh Parliament.
1: It doesn't matter what they call themselves. Mm. A monkey in silk is a monkey no less. Indeed. They are a farce. The mouse that roared. They're just like the Scottish clowns.
0: And what was it Marco Pierre White used to say on Hell's Kitchen? You can put a pig in a suit, but you can't stop it from grunting. And that, that again, is systematic of, symptomatic, rather, of where we are with these things. So
1: we, ha- we have the situation, tragically, in Wales, and the primary reason why, after over 30 years, I opted to move across the border, out of the control of the imbeciles in the Assembly. I didn't leave Wales because I don't like Wales. I left because I have nothing but contempt for the idiotic ideas of Welsh nationalism and the overt, unpleasant, and very dangerous racism in Wales. Mm,
0: I agree with you. I agree with you, and we're seeing more
1: I think and the headline on Tuesday's reading, Western
0: Mail, for example.
1: I, well, I was just reading today mm. uh, the Hansard um, parliamentary debate on overt racism and division in Wales and Welsh matters. That was in the real parliament, not the Mickey Mouse Assembly. Mm. And that was in, as I recall, 7th of May 2002.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're talking, you, you talking about something
1: that
0: you're talking about the speeches that uh, Wayne David and Klaus Smith made at the time. Indeed. Uh, yes, they were very, very good speeches. Can you please publish that on your blog and I'll invite our listeners to take a look? Um, it's on because, there. Okay, thank you. Um, we'll, we'll publicize that then. May
1: 2002.
0: That's right. I sent it to you and I'm glad I did and I'm glad you've published it because both Wayne David and Klaus Smith spoke very well that day and um, I think really that there's been murmurings about this through various politicians in the last few days, particularly on the Conservative side. Once we are out of the immediate crisis, I think now the time has come. I'm anti-devolution anyway, as indeed are you. Uh, You go back, you were one of the key people in the No campaign against the Assembly in 1997, and we'll talk about that in more depth another time. I think the time has now come. This whole pandemic has brought the sheer flaws and absurdities of devolution to the forefront. Once we are out of the Immediate danger, the time will be to come to bring to the forefront the need to abolish this and restore some sort of sanity in the way Wales is governed. Scotland, a slightly different kettle of fish for various reasons, but I think ultimately Scotland as well. The people of Scotland would benefit with not having the Scottish Parliament, which I think is causing huge divisions and problems of its own. Northern Ireland, a uh, different kettle of fish again. I won't go into that one now, it take far too long. Now, one of the problems I think with um, what Boris Johnson has announced, he has said, work from home if you can. That remains the advice. If you must go to work to do your job, avoid public transport. You're saying use your car, bicycle, or walk. Now, if so, in other words, avoid going on t- trains and buses unless you absolutely have to, because social distancing on on. Uh, trains and buses, they're going to be, have to run at something like less than a third capacity for people to use them safely. This goes against, in many towns and cities, years and years and years of councils actively discouraging people from taking their cars to work. And this brings a whole new problem now. The advice is never mind the climate change agenda, never mind, not mind gridlock on roads. And gridlock, I think, is far more of a problem than climate change, but we'll say that for another time. He Ridlock would be...
1: is far more likely at the moment, however, purely and simply because of the number of bicycles on the road that are causing chaos with the traffic.
0: Well, well bicycling on a road is extremely dangerous anyway. I think it's something like 12 times more likely to have an accident than if you're in a car. But the point I'm coming to now is that in Cardiff, this is certainly the case, and it's also the case, I know, in many, many other towns and cities. If you work in the city centre, and you drive your car into work, and you have to park it in a multi-story car park, you're looking at a bill of something like £25 per day. That's £125 per week. That is a significant chunk of your income, parking for eight, nine hours a day, whilst you do your job. For a lot of people, that is simply not going to be affordable.
1: I agree. And one of the great drawbacks of... um, the irresponsible concept uh, and mythology of greens and uh, their fellow travelers is that cars are bad for you Um, not half as bad for you as electric cars will be
0: right but address the point then (laughs) What are people to do? Because if you said to somebody who is on 10, 11 pounds an hour, or even the minimum wage, go to work if you can and avoid public transport, so you've got the ability to drive, you drive into work, and yet a fair whack, effectively all the work you do up until your lunch break is going on your car parking fee. Well, this isn't right, is it? This this is not sustainable. And the money you do make, you need to pay your bills because you're not that well off you back to a
1: hobby horse of mine, of course. Mm-hmm. Cities aren't sustainable.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we've been through that. In fact, we discussed it in one of our earlier podcasts to a large extent when you talked about the need to decentralise. I think we discussed it just last week. So what should, I don't know, should central government pass a law now that car parking fees are to be capped at X level or, or what? Because this is going to cause problems in the weeks ahead.
1: Oh, I think, I think you're going to find a that the problems of this lockdown in one format or another and its residuals will still be with us in two years time mm-hmm. because we won't have uh, a vaccine by then and unless we're incredibly lucky and the virus dies out for no explicable reason as did spanish flu in 1919 we have no reason to believe that we can do anything other than maintain social distancing travelling safely in cars and traveling alone in cars or with the person we share our home with making sure that wherever we work we are two meters away from everyone and we've seen the excellent example put forward by the supermarkets who have limited the number of people who are allowed in they have made sure that they have a flow system through the store one that actually suits the supermarkets down to the ground because it makes every person who goes into the supermarket pass every temptation that they've managed to put on the shelf but then queuing to leave through the cash out two meters apart from everybody until called forwards and then the staff on the checkout, being behind a plastic screen. All of these are measures that will have to continue for the foreseeable future. But this brings problems of its own. More and more of these things happening throughout the country.
0: Yeah, but this brings problems of its own, doesn't it? Because human nature is, we want to meet somebody usually of the opposite sex, but not always, and reproduce if you want to reproduce obviously it has to be someone of the opposite sex but people who are Can single at the work moment, that out, yes thank you yes i do know how these things work
1: you've <laughs> been fighting with that rake too much
0: <laughs> but look the fact is if you are single at the moment or if you are in a newish relationship and don't live with your partner you are being deprived from either meeting somebody new or seeing the person you have been with for a short space of time
1: or haven't made it. Unless you're a government professor and advisor. Yes, Ferguson. And then you can meet somebody else's wife. Yes. All around your house.
0: You're talking about Ferguson who resigned, and that's the same Ferguson who was heavily involved in the Remain campaign before the EU referendum as well, and doesn't seem to have been right about very much over the years, but we park that to one side. The human nature is obviously all right, people who don't live with their partners are being deprived of seeing them. And ultimately, if you want the human race to continue, people are going to have to meet partners with a view to reproducing at some point. If we're in this situation, not for, for weeks or months, but if we're looking at years, that in itself becomes a problem, doesn't it? Surely to goodness.
1: Well, when when you're talking of Neil Ferguson, just briefly, um, I am minded of a cub reporter who was sent out to interview one of the Marx brothers on his 90, 90th birthday. Um, and he said, well, now that you've reached 90, have you any ambitions left? And the Marx brother turned around and he said, Oh yes, indeed I have. Um, I am. My greatest ambition is to be shot by an Irene. I rate husband on my 100th birthday. <laughs> uh, I think Neil Ferguson was probably in greater danger of um, coming unstuck uh, with the husband of the w- woman with whom he was philandering uh, than he did of getting COVID-19. Mm. Um, and I think... He would have had a better chance of survival uh, from COVID-19 than he might well have had from uh, the husband of uh, the woman he was having an affair with.
0: But Where does this leave us in terms of people wanting to meet their partners who they may have been with for some time but don't live with, or if you're single... Okay, you can put up with being single for a period of time, but at some point you probably do want to go on a date and maybe meet someone with a view at
1: to a do At the risk of being very, very fashionable, virtual reality.
0: Which is fine up to a point. You can chat to people on Zoom up to a point. You can go on WhatsApp or whatever. But without the physical contact, you get to know them up to a point. But in terms of how these things work and reproduction and marriage and everything else that comes... Oh, that's a matter of
1: refrigeration.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you, you, you can see where we're heading. What I'm getting at is we can put up with this situation for weeks, months, even a year or so if we have to. But at some point, this is going to cause a real problem in terms of nature and how the human race and indeed all animals work.
1: Uh, the antithesis is equally true for better for worse but not for lunch
0: yeah yeah but you can see i know people who are very very well They're at the end of their tethers at the moment because they're with their partner it doesn't matter if your partner lives a mile down the road 200 miles away you either just started dating them or you've even been seeing them for a few years but this is causing all sorts of problems and zooming zoom is fine for business associates and personal friends doesn't work so well when you're dating somebody new or your partner who you haven't seen for a while and you're in a personal relationship it doesn't work as well in those contexts we're going to have to face a new reality when it comes to that sort of thing well it doesn't doesn't matter whether your partner lives a mile up the road or 200 miles away at the moment it's a huge problem this
1: well a, a friend of mine I asked what her daughter was doing during this um lockdown because she was sharing a house with uh, three other people um, none of whom was she particularly friendly with in sharing the house in london Um, and i said uh, what is she going to do and she said well before the lockdown actually started she moved in with her boyfriend and i said oh that's one answer to it so the trouble is his flat's a bit small and they're both on top of each other a bit and i said wasn't that the aim
0: <laughs> yeah i i know what you're getting at but there is no obvious answer to this in uh, in terms of if you don't live with your partner and i know many people in this position you've got big problems at the moment and there's no end in sight and that in itself is, is causing issues. But the last serious point I want to make on this week's podcast, I want to talk about the situation in Germany. And I say this for a reason, because in terms of lockdown restrictions being eased, I'm not so concerned about Spain because there's been a, bit of, well, a lot of lazy reporting in the British media about how Spain is easing lockdown. You look at what's actually happened in Spain, even the easing that has taken place, they're still far stricter than we in Britain ever were in that I haven't necessarily got this in the right order, but um, the adults, normal-aged adults, I say normal-aged, non-pensioner adults, are allowed out between uh, 10 and 12. Uh, Pensioners are allowed out, the elderly are allowed out between midday and 2 p.m. Children are allowed out between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. for exercise and recreation. So they're stricter than we've ever been, is the point there. Germany has, they haven't eased off completely by a very, very long way. There are still social distancing rules, but they've allowed in the last two to three weeks a far greater range of shops to open, department stores, and on this coming weekend, the Bundesliga football is due to resume. Now, what we have already seen in the last few days in Germany is the infection rate and the retransmission rate climb above. From 0.8 to above one. What I am concerned about is that although I'm not saying Germany has necessarily been reckless, what I am saying is that the easing off, they've eased off more than any other European country has. This does appear to indicate that when you do that, the virus comes back. Now we can watch from a safe ish distance of what Germany is doing and we can see the dangers. I personally think the first thing Merkel should do right now is say, very sorry. No football coming back this weekend, point one. And then very shortly after that, look again sharply at what they have done in ease and restrictions to the extent that they have.
1: As you're well aware, Marcus, and I'm sure many of our listeners are, I've followed the figures fairly closely. I'd like to run something very quickly past people. Don't believe any of them. They are not plausible, they're not accurate, and they're not comparing like with like. We talk in terms of Britain has overtaken Italy in the number of deaths and um, yeah, but we have 10% more population for starters. We include in our figures, hospital deaths from COVID-19, care home deaths from COVID-19, and where possible, deaths at home or outside of hospital with COVID-19. We are declaring far more accurate figures than almost any other country on the planet. With that,
0: in, with that in mind, then is Germany? Let's look at what's happened in Germany because the news from there has been quite alarming in the last few I, days.
1: I will get to Germany in a sec, Marcus. But bear in mind, we have we are actually using the Office of National Statistics figures, albeit they are take a week to collate, so they're a week late in adjusting. We know exactly how many people died in the equivalent week in previous years. So our figure also takes into consideration the increased death rate, not just the ones attributed. Also, Spain, we've overtaken Spain. Well, are people aware of just how much bigger Spain is than Britain? and the fact that we have 40% more people. They quote at us Sweden. Well, Sweden is five silver birches standing round 6,000 lakes in a large chunk of countryside where their, their largest city is a fraction the size of numerous British cities.
0: Well, Stockholm, which is the largest, is 500,000. And the other thing I would point out is...
1: That's less than Bristol. Uh,
0: Indeed, indeed. What what I would point out is, and I've said this numerous times, not just on this podcast, but in other media appearances I've made, the Swedish example is not one I would advocate and it's not one to follow, but it's also incorrect to say... That Sweden has done nothing. They did put in substantial social distancing rules and the the, the way the Swedish population relates to its government and behaves. They they have done things, is what I'm saying. It's not just been a free-for-all like Belarus has been. But can you address my point about Germany, please?
1: Germany has a larger landmass. Angela Merkel gave one of the most coherent explanations of the risk in terms of uh, a repeat and repeat basis the the r number and it was very coherent and explained it and she has been forced by social pressure or so it would seem to ignore her own advice and permit a weakening of their lockdown but germany is A very big area it has the advantage of some very large forests and um, some you could almost call them mountain ranges uh, steep hills and wilderness areas breaking up the country into pockets that people tend not to move into the next area on a regular basis Britain you can spit across in three goes it's the furthest you can get from the sea is 72 miles. It's also the reason why we will never make our railways pay in Britain for the simple reason the cost of running those railways with or without social distancing the cost is loading people and goods on and taking them off divided by the number of miles travelled.
0: Right, right, okay, we, we haven't got time to go into a big debate about the railways here, but in terms of where Germany is, okay, we by definition... they tra- for trouble. Yeah, I think so. Now, we in Britain, as, as you rightly say, we travel around a lot more because we do live on a small island and we got motorways and trains and everything else. Germany, there's a lot more regional loyalties and regional autonomies and regional identities throughout the, the different parts of Germany. Now, Germany, we are seeing these figures creeping up. I know why they were keen to get the Bundesliga up and running this weekend with restrictions, but I think what the news we've seen from Germany in recent days, disturbing though it is, I think that should be halted immediately. No Bundesliga. I know why they're doing it. And uh, Richard Keyes and Andy Gray were talking about this on their Be In Sports programme on Arabic TV, also streamed on YouTube the other day. In terms of the best football leagues in Europe... The Premier League, you've got the Premier League, you've got La Liga in Spain, you've got Serie A in Italy, and you've got the Bundesliga. France, not quite in that level. Now, in terms of marketing around the world, the English Premier League is by far and away the most successful. The Spanish League, obviously, we've got uh, two teams in effect, uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid, everyone else is the also-ran. And the team that finishes bottom of England's Premier League gets more money in TV revenue than whoever wins the Liga in Spain. So that gives you a bit of context. The reason one of the big reasons, as Richard Keyes rightly said the other day on television, that Germany is so keen to um, resume the Bundesliga is that it is underdeveloped in commercial terms. It's a very good league. It's a very entertaining league. Their teams regularly reach the latter stages of the European Champions League. But in terms of commercial revenue and worldwide awareness, it is not on an anything like the same level as particularly the English Premier League and to an extent the Liga in Spain. And what they are trying to do is exploit this opportunity, no football going on elsewhere, come and watch our product, come and see our league, good though it is, because there is nothing else and that will draw an audience. Now, I think that is a very dangerous game to play because you are only one player, manager, coach, referee, linesman, cameraman, Anyone else of the bare minimum 100 people you need involved to make the game take place in terms of television, broadcasting, players, officials, a lot. All you need is for one of those to become ill and the whole thing looks extremely foolish. I would urge... That's called corporate manslaughter. Indeed, and the former Crystal Palace chairman, Simon Jordan, used that exact term. I think, well, I, I don't think, I urge very strongly, and I hope you'll join me in this, Greg, Angela Merkel to say... Today, I'm afraid this should not, if she can order it not to take place, she should do so. If not, she should put very heavy pressure on La Liga to say, you must not allow this to take place. It is dangerous.
1: Germany and France particularly have a major, major problem with marketing their football on a world platform. It is not the football. It is not the promotion of the game. It isn't even their ability to play it. The one thing they have loaded against them is their language. Mm. No one else speaks French around the world. No one else speaks German around the world on a day-to-day basis. We are very fortunate in Britain And the reason why our football has been popular around the world is because a huge percentage of the world population speak English. And on top of that, the followers to that are Spain and Italy and Portugal, who all speak a Latin language that is widely understood in many other countries.
0: But on top of that, the Premier League has also succeeded in countries where English is not the first language. They think nothing now of selling the broadcast rights to the English Premier League in parts of the world like China and Japan, where English is not widely spoken. And oh, they, okay. they, 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 they send their own commentators to, to commentate in their own language, and it becomes a huge product. I mean, Manchester United is a huge brand in China. So There are
1: very few streets you could walk into in China or Japan Or India or Africa where you would not find people perfectly capable of speaking English.
0: Yeah but what I'm getting at is that there are TV contracts in place in all of those countries where again English is not the first language or even the second language in some cases and the Premier League is still a successful product because they obviously they send their own commentators and their own presentation teams to do it in their language. So we we could debate this to the hilt about why uh, look the Premier League, whatever you whatever you may think of it as a product as, as Greg Dyke, who was one of the founders of the Premier League in the uh, early nineties, it was it was originally one of he was one of the him and Alan Sugar and Rupert Murdoch. It was initially their idea, but Greg Dyke has now said it's played by foreigners, uh, watched by foreigners, managed by f- foreigners. Uh, owned by foreigners to a very large extent. I think all 20 current Premier League clubs are owned by foreigners now. And he said it's a very, very good commercially successful product. It hasn't got very much to do with English football, but that's a debate for another day. So I, I can see why Germany is trying to exploit this opportunity, but I think this is not only dangerous, but for the reasons you've said, it could backfire spectacularly. Now, I want to conclude on that note. We're doing it deliberately shorter this week. Uh, We're getting a bit of feedback. People preferred the old format when it was a little bit shorter, so we're reverting to that. Let us know your thoughts, whether you prefer the longer format or the shorter format. We would appreciate that. So, Greg, we've had three days of good weather, three days of bad since we last did a podcast. What have you been doing with yourself to keep yourself amused?
1: Uh, The good weather, we've been continuing to work on our allotment without climbing on our bicycle because it surrounds our house Uh, and uh, we've had that tremendous benefit we've completely restructured the front um, area of the house not completed yet and on the three really ghastly days when although the sun shone occasionally it was damned freezing Um, and you won't catch me going out in that um because i i immediately plead medical grounds because uh, i have a heart condition and the second that i go out and it's cold i'm without puff instantly and can't do anything anyway mm-hmm. so on those days i've tried to catch up with uh all the computer stuff that uh, the blogs and my reading on the internet that I have let slip because of the good weather. Mm. I always tend to get more done in the winter than I do in the summer.
0: Yeah, so what, what sort of stuff have you been reading? Any, any, anything you could very briefly share with us? Anything not related to what we discussed that may interest our listeners a little bit?
1: Well, I've been ploughing through uh, the reports very much on... COVID around the world. Uh, I've read quite extensively on the medical backgrounds and other historical material like Spanish flu and the um, plague of 1665 and the medieval Black Death and similar pandemics because pandemics are a reality of life on this fairly volatile planet and with that
0: in mind then can I ask you I just want one question because we are coming towards the end but on that note is there a pattern in these pandemics of how they generally come to an end and after what period of time
1: briefly if you would please well the medieval pattern one came to an end when it had killed 60% of the population of Europe Mm. and Europe in medieval time was basically um, all that we knew much of worldwide in the 1300s. There must obviously have been an element of herd immunity had crept into it, uh, not by design because at that stage, they hadn't worked out that the plague was transmitted by fleas and the fleas were transported by rats. Um,
0: what about the Spanish flu? How did that come to an end?
1: Spanish flu started in 1917. It's thought to have started in a field hospital in northern France because... Without the joys of refrigeration, food was kept on the site on the hoof. And that meant chickens and pigs primarily uh, for meat, eggs, and the like, and a certain number of milk cows. And there, there was a, a changeover from, uh, they think pigs through chickens to human beings bearing in mind that in a field hospital uh, there would be a lot of mud around uh, there would be fairly insanitary conditions there would be open wounds there would be operations and there would be vulnerable people and viruses by definition exploit the vulnerable it then is thought to have transferred with American troops to a training base in Kansas where it proliferated and was spread back to Europe. The reason it's called Spanish flu has nothing to do with it having been a Spanish flu. It was just that this started in 1917 when Nobody in the protagonist sides was about to display a weakness to the opposition. And therefore they said nothing about this flu that was spreading amongst them. And through 1918 and in at the end of 1918, at the end of the war, uh, which, of course, ended in uh, Europe on uh, the 8th of May. But, sorry, I'm doing it again. That was uh, Second World War. Ended on the 11th of November. And nobody talked about flu until that date. But even then, there were so many people on the move refugees, troops going home etc, that nobody was quite aware of just how bad the problem was.
0: Yeah, we, you talked about this just last week, you went into quite a bit of depth. So what I'm getting at is that, I, I, how did it end this Spanish? It
1: just move? died out.
0: Yeah, this is the Again, thing.
1: Again, a case of probably some form of herd immunity on flu, but flu is nothing like as pernicious a virus as the coronaviruses, which all have the possibility of being a major pandemic. Flu, Spanish flu, killed between 50 and 100,000 people. Hmm. And it just died out. We don't know why it ground to a halt. Probably the virus mutated slightly. And just didn't survive well in humans who had started to build up a herd immunity.
0: Well, on that note, then, I think we should bring it to an end at, at this point. I mean, the, the big thing about this coronavirus, COVID 19, is how little we actually know for sure about how it works. So, my message to our listeners is <laughs> do please stay safe, use your common sense when you're out and about keep travel when it's still absolutely essential if you are going to go out and exercise it is healthy to go out and exercise do so safely take logical precautions but uh, my thanks as always to greg my thanks to you for listening we'll see you again next week